other Sherlock Holmes moments where you're trawling through the evidence to try to find that what will be helpful and, and consider what's unhelpful as well. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 147 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Sometimes our clients hit troubled water and they need a bigger boat to rescue them than the boat we can provide. And so we call a tax lawyer for help. Andrew Henshaw is a tax lawyer with Velocity Legal in Sydney and you met Andrew already in episode 136 about ATO disputes. I asked Andrew whether he could share some insights, experiences and advice for us from his work as a tax lawyer and he kindly said yes. Would you describe yourself as a tax lawyer? Correct. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely first and foremost a, a tax lawyer, a tax nerd. Yeah, so my background is tax advisory and tax disputes for private businesses and um, private business owners. Our firm specialises in tax law and commercial law primarily. And when you look at the market of tax lawyers, well, I can imagine all tax lawyers cover all tax disputes or are there companies that just do Division 7A and nothing else or just do small business CGT concessions and nothing else? My observations on that is in the, in the sort of top end of town space, in the public company space, there tends to be more specialisation. So... For instance, in your you know your your top tier accounting firms and very large law firms, you'll tend to have, for instance, an indirect tax team, and they may only do GST or only do stamp duty, and they'll tend to have experts for, for instance, transfer pricing, thin capitalization, and tax consolidation. So these areas are very weighty and very complex. But these areas typically, other than stamp duty, those other areas like thin capitalization and TOFA, ta- tax consolidation, they they typically only impact public companies. So in that space, you will find further specialization within the broad umbrella of being a tax lawyer or a tax advisor. In the private space, it's a little bit different because the companies are smaller, the entities are smaller, they typically expect sort of more, a greater range of service, but also that we don't have to deal with things like TOFA, for instance, which is a complex regime. So typically in the private space, you will find that advisors will be expected and do deal across all range of tax matters and including duty and state taxes as well. And so within these private clients... Which area is the most litigious? You know, which area is uh, ends up in front of the court? Yeah. Is it Division 7A or is well, it small business yeah. sessions? The areas that I've found that, that end up in dispute territory, probably there's a few. So the small business CGT concessions are one, and that's because they do offer – it's a lot of money. They do offer quite generous concessions and – Although these rules are pitched at small businesses and are supposed to be easy to understand, they are actually incredibly complex. There's complexity and there's, there's quite a few dollars at stake. Division 7A is another one and, again, it's due to complexity and, and the consequences of unfranked dividends and deemed dividends arising. Another one that's been in play quite a lot in the last few years is the topic of whether individuals are residents of Australia or not for tax purposes. 
you might have seen there's been quite a lot of cases in the media and the most recent one is Harding's case. But there's been quite a lot of cases in either the AAT or the courts about whether a particular person is a resident of Australia or not. And typically they'll have some connections in Australia and some connections overseas. And they'll usually be working in a low tax jurisdiction. So there is a big difference between their position for how much tax they're due to pay in Australia. The other topic that immediately comes to mind is is on property transactions. So revenue versus capital, whether some, yeah yeah for property investors. So for whether an investor was truly a passive investor or were they carrying on a business or a profit making undertaking or scheme in respect to property? Because again, a big difference between between those. The last one that I find does that comes up quite a bit is in respect of pre CGT assets. Because of the value of sort of preserving pre-CGT status, there can often disputes arise about whether that status has been preserved. So is goodwill still pre-1985? Are the transactions that have happened since 1985 to now, have they altered that status through shareholders maybe passing away or uh, interpositions or restructures being done in that time? Like that's a quite a fruitful one as well. So. And lastly, state taxes as well, especially on the, the landholder rules. And they're different in each state as well, but those rules are really complex and they assess whether the transfer of units or shares in an entity that owns land, should that transfer of units or shares actually be subject to duty? And those rules are very complex as well. I guess these disputes arise when the dollars and stake are high and the law is grey, really. So six areas. Yep. CGT concessions, Division 7A, residency. Property investments, pre-CGT assets, and land tax. Land, yeah, landholder land duty. Yeah, that's a good summation. Yep, yeah. When do you come into the game? I, I can imagine you come into play reasonably late when there is already a dispute and yeah, yes. people are in despair and the regular tax accountant doesn't know how to go from here? Usually you're the um, the white knight that's trying to come in and save or sort of get the best outcome. Now, of course, in dispute territory, you don't have the benefit of being able to advise on how to do the transaction. The transaction's already been done. It's more about ascertaining what was done, whether that fits within whatever the provisions are. A lot of the time it's really about getting evidence and applying those evidences to the law. Usually what's in dispute is not the law, it's the evidence. That's probably 75, 80% of the time. It's disputing whether the facts fit in the particular circumstance. So for instance, was this property acquired as a passive investment or was it business? Let's look at the bank records, let's look at the loan applications. So a lot of the time it comes down to evidence Do you sometimes feel like a detective? A bit like a detective, yeah, yeah. There are the Sherlock Holmes moments where you're trawling through the evidence to try to find that what will be helpful and what and consider what's unhelpful as well. Although it's mainly about evidence, sometimes it, there's genuinely questions about the law itself and the law being grey in particular scenarios. Also, there's the, 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 the strategic element to it as well. So it's not just about whether a, a taxpayer is right or wrong under the law. There's also the question of whether penalties should apply as well. And while there are statutory assessments for the penalties, whether you fall into one category or another is arguable and is debatable. So I guess my job is, yes, partly the detective form of view of the taxpayer's chances, 
if the chances are extremely low, then my recommendation would be try to settle this, try to minimize the damage and, and move on. But if in some cases the, the chances are a bit better and they do actually have a case. So my advice could be you know, you've got a strong case, we just need to explain this properly and if we explain it properly the query will go away or it could be one where it's more 50 50 and in that case it could be well we say this and ATO you say this and the law is quite gray in this area we've both got a shot of being right how about we settle in the middle and you can't wheel and deal with the ATO it's not a commercial settlement you've got to sort of assess your positions and if you've got a 50 percent shot of being right and the ATO have a 50 percent shot of being right and that's an objective assessment of those percentages, that's the kind of situation where you can where you can get those sort of settlements. Is there a close-knit group of ATO personnel who deal with these issues? Mm. Or is it that in most cases it's a new person you haven't dealt with before? Yeah, in most cases it's a new person and in most cases it's someone in a different office in a different state as well. There's been very little cases where I've actually come across the same person and you've got to be borne in mind the ATO is a very large organisation and it's quite well resourced as well. So the tendency to come across particular offices again and again is quite low. I think there's a sort of a bit of a misconception in this area that it's can sort of pull out my phone and give a call to my mate at the ATO and I'll get this all sorted for you. You really got to play it by it. And with the things with the ATO in recent years and the, the stuff that's gone on, it just evidences that that's not the case at all. You need to do things through the proper system. Cases get allocated and you go like that. Having said that, when I've dealt with state revenue office, just because they're a small, the state revenue office or Revenue New South Wales, because they're smaller organisations, you tend to actually, just, just by virtue of them being smaller, you do tend to run across the same people from matter to matter. When you deal with the ATO, it doesn't quite depend on who you get on the other end. So sometimes it's easy and pleasant because the person on the other side is even easier and pleasant and then you get somebody else who's yeah. easy and unpleasant. That's so does it come down quite a lot to the personality of on the other side? You definitely get very different experiences from time to time and a lot of it is about... I guess, first impressions. From the ATO's perspective, I think a lot of it comes down to which channel this comes through. So for example, let's say the client's got a problem and we're not sure how to trade it and we say, okay, well, let's go to the ATO, let's go get a private ruling or let's go approach the early engagement team. We, We would like some guidance. We're genuinely not sure how to treat this. We think it's this way, but we're approaching the ATO to, to, to give us some guidance on how to, how to treat this. And in those cases, I, I generally find that the ATO is a lot more approachable and quite pleasant and easy to deal with just because it's not like you've been caught, quote unquote, caught out. You actually approach the ATO and, and they can be, they're usually very, very reasonable to deal with. In some other circumstances, it can be, the first impression can be a lot more negative. So for instance, let's say it's a residency matter and the client has been transferring large sums of money back to Australia. They didn't think they were a resident, so they haven't lodged tax returns. So what the ATO sees is they see money being transferred back, triggering Austrac. So they've got the Austrac report saying, hey, this person's transferred back $500,000. And by the way, they haven't lodged tax returns for the last five years. That case is probably going to go to a task force type 
team that is going to probably deal with that quite in a quite different way than if you were approaching the ATO saying, look, I'm not sure whether I'm a resident or not, how how should I be treated? And maybe some of that's just due to the fact that when you do catch people, there are more people who are doing the wrong thing as, as part of that. But you can definitely have different, and then even between those scenarios, but between those different cases, you just get different officers who have different way about going about things. So yeah, you can get very different um, a treatment. I find that the best is to really be open and honest and transparent and, and upfront as well. And my view is there's no point sort of running around playing games. Games. Try to be upfront, honest. Obviously, acting in your client's best interest and being and being firm about that, but but being open and honest as well. What's your role when it comes to truth? So let's say the client tells you something, but tells you not to tell the ATO. I don't know. They brought some money back in a suitcase or something. You know, yeah. something that they tell you, but that would harm them if you told the ATO. What's your position as a lawyer? Yeah, you've got to be extremely careful. And Are you allowed to withhold information that you know? I assume you're probably not allowed to lie. No, if you know something is untrue. So as lawyers, we have obligations under the, the relevant legal, legal professional act. And also because... I'm registered as a tax agent as well. We've got rights and obligations under the the tax agents, uh, the TASA Tax Agents Act as well. So you're in a lot of problems so where you know. criminal law because I think in criminal law you can tell your lawyer that you did it, but I think your lawyer can then still argue that you didn't. I think in a criminal matter they can't argue that you. So I think to take your example, if in a criminal matter, if our client says, yeah, I did it. You can't then say in a dispute that they did not do it. But what you can do is you can challenge the evidence. You can say you can't conclude that. But you've got to be very careful. And as, as a practical thing, I probably wouldn't act for those kind of clients in a tax dispute because if they're not going to be honest with me or upfront with the ATO as well, then they're probably not the right client for me. I see. So um, now there's actually no difference between criminal law and tax law when it comes to the role of the lawyer. Yeah, I don't believe so, no. I see. Okay. Yeah. So you're not allowed to lie even yep. if the client instructs you to lie. Mm. And if the client discloses some information that you're not meant to disclose, then you're still obliged you're not obliged to tell the ATO how to make their case or how to run their case, okay. but you can't. The ATO, for instance, has particularly strong information gathering powers. So it can, if there's a document, they can ask for it and they can request all that stuff through their own powers. You can't tell them something that's not true if you know that's that's the case. But, but, you can, you don't have, some, but yeah. if there's something that you know that the ATO doesn't know, then you're not obliged to disclose it. I don't believe so, no. Yeah. 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 Okay. Mm. But you... But so the, uh, the moral of the story for clients is if they don't want the ATO to know something, they mm. must not tell their lawyer. <laughs> My advice in this area is, is to be upfront with the tax office because if you're not and you get found out, then the, the result is going to be much more severe. One, from an optics sort of perception perspective because the case office is going to think you've got something to hide and clearly you did. And two, from a penalties perspective that they're probably going to think that you're, a, you're an evader. You know, they could make the, they could form the view that you're, you've done fraud or evasion. They're going to go back more than four years. They're going to impose a top level of penalties. So, yeah, my strong recommendation is to, is to disclose and be upfront. And is that a challenge with when you think kind of your average client? Is it a challenge to get them to open up, or do you yeah. find when you first come in, they hold their cards very closely, they're kind of afraid of telling you the whole story, and then mm. is it a challenge to get them to 
open up and follow you yeah. on a truthful path? Yeah, it can be. So it's not about don't just tell, like I say, don't tell me what I want to hear. Tell me the facts and I'll make an assessment of where that lies. When you converse with me, that's subject to legal professional privilege. I'll give you an assessment of, of where it is. Don't say, okay, let's say I think I'm not a resident of Australia, so I'm only going to tell you things that that support that case. And then what invariably happens in that scenario is then you have the ATO saying, by the way, this, 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 you didn't even know about it. It's very hard to put your best foot forward when you don't know those facts. If you know them, at least you can try to mitigate them, acknowledge that they exist, yeah, yeah, and say, okay, well, we acknowledge that that's not favourable but there's all these other factors that are or, okay, we acknowledge that and we probably don't have a strong case, let's let's settle it, avoid the dispute or or end the dispute. So, yeah, it it can be a challenge, yeah. Does it happen often that the ATO then comes with evidence that you didn't know about because the client chose not to tell you? It does and it's it's very, yeah, it's very tricky and very damaging when that when that happens. Um, yeah, because it means that invariably you've put something forward to the ATO that isn't the complete picture because you didn't know that it was any different. So from the ATO's perspective, okay, well, they've got this submission or this correspondence saying all these things but you know, they don't know why these other things aren't in there and and it can be yeah it can be quite damaging yeah welcome back in the next episode episode 148 we will start a new mini series about division 7a its general concept possible fixes when you have a division 7a problem the division 7a issue around upes and trusts and also the outstanding division 7a reform among other things. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.